0: Thank you very much. Wonderful introduction. The problem with these really wonderful introductions is it's hard to live up to them. <laughs> I'm delighted to be in Grand Rapids tonight, speaking under the auspices of the Gerald R. Museum, R. Ford Museum and Grand Valley State, and I want to thank Richard Norton Smith and the representatives of both institutions for their invitation and their hospitality. And and I might add, for the Lincoln exhibit, which I I find wonderful, I think it's uh, very carefully chosen, if you have any sense of the universe of Lincoln artifacts and documents, and then a feel for what his life is all about, Um, the selection that went into that choice uh, is really quite exquisite, and I think uh, we're all very fortunate to have seen that exhibit. I want to see it again. The events of September 11th, have affected us all and suggested the inadvisability and inappropriateness of many previously scheduled public events. But I'm pleased to see that there are people in Grand Rapids who persist in thinking that talking about American presidents isn't one of them. The object of this lecture series, after all, was a war president who saw his role not only as directing the war effort but formulating and putting into words the rationale for fighting an immensely agonizing and protracted war. He labored under enormous handicaps, particularly at first, when he was roundly believed by the American intelligentsia to be a small town, Midwestern politician of limited abilities who was simply in over his head. How he proved them wrong is, of course, one of the most remarkable stories in American history. So I welcome the chance to address you tonight on a subject of enduring relevance and importance, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is unique in many ways, but a notable aspect of his uniqueness, I think, is that his life is one of the traditional topics of American history that continues to be taught in our schools and continues to have an impact. I've always thought this is because the students are introduced to Lincoln's life in the primary grades. I ran across some evidence of this a while back, and I'd like to share it with you. These are responses of fourth and fifth graders, which I take to be the results of an assignment asking the students to pick out something they've learned about Abraham Lincoln, and then to say what they think it means or how they feel about it. Here are some of the results. Abraham Lincoln lived in a log cabin. When he had to go to the bathroom, he had to go outside. Even in winter, he was very sad. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln didn't have television to watch, so he had to read books. It wasn't much fun being a kid in those days. Abraham Lincoln read his books and did his homework by the light of the fireplace. This is because he was too poor to pay the electric bill and they turned off his electric. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln was the best president we ever had. He was poor but honest. If he hadn't been so honest, he probably would have been rich. Abraham Lincoln was called Honest Abe because he was an honest president. They shot him. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln and George Washington are our two best-loved presidents. This is because they are dead. (laughs) One more. Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president, but he was a good president in spite of this. It's been common practice in recent years for scholars to begin their presentations by acknowledging their biases or, in the language so often invoked, to say where they're coming from. So let me confess at the outset that I, too, am an admirer of Abraham Lincoln. You may think this is unremarkable, but if you stop to think about it, admiration is not necessarily an asset for a scholar whose business is supposed to be to follow the truth wherever it leads. It's all too easy and in some cases almost unavoidable to begin to identify with one's subject and then to take his side against his critics and eventually to become defensive about his liabilities and shortcomings. We all know that once you start moving in this direction uh, you usually end up becoming an apologist. Abraham Lincoln was a great man by almost any standard But he was, after all, a man, a human being. Nothing is gained and much is lost if we allow ourselves to lose sight of that irreducible fact. I mentioned this at the outset because I've come to believe that talking about Lincoln is not like talking about any other historical figure. I studied and wrote about Thomas Jefferson for a good many years, Mr. Smith suggested. And I thought I knew what it was like to stand up in front of an American audience and talk about an authentic American hero. Jefferson has almost universal name recognition. Even the French will acknowledge that they've heard of him. (laughs) And he has a large constituency of admirers. But Abraham Lincoln, as I've learned, is in a class by himself. Even in an age when the traditional American heroes were out of fashion, Interest in him is still surprisingly strong. I think this is largely because his story and personal example have become so ingrained in us as Americans that he has become part of our national identity. I regard this as fortunate because my study of the man shows him to be a marvelous exemplar of American values and an extraordinarily good role model. But the downside of all of this is that people don't like to hear untoward things about their heroes. Let me give you a personal example. A few years back I got interested in some clues in the writings of Lincoln's law partner and biographer, William H. Herndon, that indicated that in creating an archive of letters and interviews about Lincoln, testimony that came from people who knew him, Herndon had recorded some of what he was told in two little memorandum books that have long since disappeared. From hints that he dropped here and there, it becomes evidence that he had used these two little memorandum books as repositories for some of the unseemly or unflattering stories that he'd been told about his law part. After perusing these two lost memorandum books for several years and wondering about their contents, I got on the trail of a woman who had read them in 1866. To make a long story short, her private journal, her letters, and her journalism provide intriguing, if highly problematic glimpses of what she'd seen. What most interested me was that Herndon, who revered his partner, but disliked the deification that was being conferred on him, believed that the world deserved to know the whole truth about its great men and that Lincoln's undeniable greatness could not be diminished by the truth about his life, whatever that might be. Herndon thought for a long time he could find a way to tell even the most unwelcome and unflattering truths about Lincoln without demeaning him. But because of the material in his two little memorandum books, he was caught on the horns of a dilemma, and he finally couldn't bring himself to use that kind of material in his biography. It was this dilemma that interested me, but when I talked about it with some Lincoln audiences, presenting some of the indications of what Herndon had collected in his memorandum books, became clear that there are some things about their heroes that people would rather not know. If you're sufficiently interested in this example, you can read about it in the May 2000 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Incidentally, I submitted that article with the title Herndon's Dilemma, but the editors insisted on giving it a title that points in a slightly more suggestive direction keeping Lincoln's secrets. No one here needs to be reminded that Abraham Lincoln first achieved national recognition as a politician through his famous series of debates with Stephen A. Douglas in 1858. One of those debates took place in Galesburg, Illinois, on the campus of Knox College, where I've spent most of my working life as a teacher of American literature, American studies. As a result of the publicity surrounding the reenactment of those debates a few years ago, sponsored by and filmed by C-SPAN, many people around the country became aware that the old main building at Knox College is the only building associated with the Lincoln-Douglas debate that's still standing. Those who've studied those famous encounters will know that the debate at Knox College, the fifth in the series, was not just a repetition of past performances. Here, Lincoln deliberately took the gloves off and attacked Douglas for his declared indifference as to the morality of slavery. It was a fitting place for such a move as the town of Galesburg and Knox College had been founded 20 years earlier by profoundly anti-slavery people. Opposition to slavery was not something incidental to their beliefs, but was in fact a basic tenet. And this at a time and a place where it earned them few friends and many enemies. Without trying to make too much of it, it's fair to say that there is in some degree a connection between the college and what it stood for and the timing and substance of Lincoln's Galesburg speech, which some thought was the most important of the entire series. This connection was implicitly acknowledged by the college two years later in 1860 when the faculty proposed and the trustees voted presidential nominee Abraham Lincoln the college's first honorary degree. It was, in fact, the first degree or academic diploma of any kind that Lincoln himself ever received. Perhaps one of the best-known parts of the Lincoln legend is his self-education, his determined efforts as a young man to compensate for his lack of formal education, which he once said amounted to less than a year in backwoods schools. He was acutely conscious of this lack of formal education and was very forthright in acknowledging it, as when he responded to a questionnaire for people who had served in Congress. The questionnaire asked, education? To which Lincoln's reply, duly printed in the congressional directory, was one word, defective. This is the background of that's necessary to fully appreciate the remark he's supposed to have made on climbing through the first floor window of Old Main to reach the debate platform in Galesburg. At last, I have gone through college. <laughs> it's a great story. I wish I could document it. The Lincoln Studies Center at Knox was inspired by the existence of these very real connections between Knox College and Abraham Lincoln. It began with very basic and uncomplicated aims. Having started an American Studies program in the 1960s, My partner in the history department, Rodney O. Davis, and I conceived and team-taught a series of interdisciplinary courses for over 25 years, the most recent of which was called Jefferson and Lincoln. We'd been involved in Lincoln research for more than 10 years when we retired, and we began the Lincoln Studies Center by simply asking the college for an office and continuing our own research projects. Our first, an edition of the letters and interviews about Lincoln collected by Herndon, had come to fruition in the publication of Herndon's Informants in 1997. And in the course of this endeavor, we had been encouraged by other Lincoln scholars to collect and edit Herndon's own extensive writings on Lincoln, a work which we have duly undertaken. We have also in progress a second project, which will probably be completed before the first, a new edition of Herndon's own biography of his law partner, Herndon's Lincoln, first published in 1889. Now these projects emerged naturally from our previous work, but down the road we hope to take on a project that would be especially appropriate for Knox College, and is long overdue the first scholarly edition of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. While there have been numerous editions of the debates since they were first put together and printed in 1860, it comes as a surprise to most people to learn that, important as they are in American history, these famous debates have never been critically edited. That is to say, they've never been edited in the way that, say, Shakespeare's plays have been, by comparing all the printed versions of what was said by the participants and painstakingly working out the most accurate and reliable text. For all practical purposes, the Lincoln-Douglas debates have had only one editor, whose version is reprinted over and over again. The editor was none other than Abraham Lincoln whose editorial efforts consisted of cutting out the speeches from the partisan newspapers, correcting a few errors of the press in his own speech, and pasting the clippings into a scrapbook. While it may seem immodest to say so, we believe it's possible to improve very substantially on Lincoln's editorial efforts, and to produce an edition that will more faithfully present what was said in these momentous debates. Now all of this sounds like a very full agenda, but no sooner had we hung out the shingle for the Lincoln Studies Center in 1997 than we heard from the Library of Congress. And this has been described a little bit in in, uh, Mr. Smith's introduction. They wanted us to transcribe and annotate the manuscripts in their Lincoln collection for use in their virtual library in the World Wide Web. This is a project to make it possible for anyone with access to the web to see an image of every document in the Lincoln Collection in the Library of Congress. For all the documents in Lincoln's own hand and for a substantial portion of the rest of the collection, there will the the virtual Lincoln Library will also give the web user a literal transcription of the text with annotations to identify and explain the people and incidents referred to. I don't have time to go into the details of this flattering proposal except to say they made us an offer that we could not refuse. We now have, in addition to ourselves, a staff of three full-time people and a contract with requirements for regular submissions and deadlines. Very recently, we've agreed to expand on this material and create an online edition of all of Lincoln's presidential papers. So much for retirement. Now, whenever I talk about a new Lincoln project or carrying on Lincoln research, I know from experience that there's always a nagging reservation in the minds of my listeners that runs like this. If Abraham Lincoln is, by your own admission, the best known, the most studied, the most written about figure in American history, reportedly the subject of some 12,000 published volumes and tens of thousands of essays and articles, how badly do we need more books about it? How much more is there to know? Hasn't his life and career been investigated thoroughly from every conceivable angle? What purpose is served by sifting these well-sifted ashes again and again? Now these are fair questions. And as one who has helped exacerbate the problem by adding three more books to the pile with the intention of adding even more, I feel called upon to attempt an answer. So the balance of my remarks here tonight will be directed to the question, is there still more to learn about Abraham Lincoln? To begin with, I hope my description of our program of activities at the Lincoln Studies Center has already suggested that there are indeed basic materials for the study of Abraham Lincoln that are still lacking. My partner and I spent more years than we care to count putting together an addition of the richest body of information that exists on the pre-presidential years of Lincoln's life. These letters and interviews collected by William H. Herndon from people who either knew Lincoln personally or were able to provide information about him had never been presented in their entirety and were previously available only in published excerpts, in bad transcriptions, or on microfilm. As a result, even the best-informed Lincoln scholars had no more than a partial and often a very biased and erroneous view of what was contained in this important cache of primary source material. These letters and interviews are now fully available for readers of all stripes, annotated and indexed, and if the reviewers in recent books are any guide, very useful to students of Lincoln. I offer that as my first exhibit in evidence. In talking about what we still have to learn about Abraham Lincoln, I cannot emphasize too strongly the lesson that the research I've been involved in has repeatedly shown that we have not yet discovered or uncovered or recovered all the important source material for Lincoln's life. I know this seems hard to believe, but it is being borne out all the time. When I first entered the Lincoln field, I confessed that I had nothing further in mind than to make a comparison of the youthful reading of Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, whose formative reading I've been pursuing for several years. And this led me to the magnificent archive of letters and interviews collected by Herndon, who was himself in- interested in what, um, in what his law partner had read as a young man and who had quizzed many of his informants on this very point. But what I found in reading my way through these materials was that a, a large body of testimony that seemed to fly in the face of the accepted picture of Lincoln's early years. The most eye-catching instance of this was the testimony relating to the Ann Rutledge story, Lincoln's supposed love affair and engagement that Lincoln biographers have long agreed to designate as mostly myth, mere folklore verging on fiction. But it was hard for me to see what was wrong with the testimony of some 24 witnesses who were almost unanimously agreed that Lincoln not only courted Ann Rutledge and had been engaged to her, but that he went off the deep end when she suddenly died. There are many other aspects of Lincoln's early life that this body of material told about or pointed to that had either been ignored or little explored in Lincoln biography. So as my partner and I prepared our edition of Herndon's materials, I began writing essays, and finally a book, Honor's Voice, about the picture of Lincoln's early life that emerges from that and other material, a picture that's distinctly different from the one that traditional biography had imposed. Let me offer some examples of how this works. Going through the hundreds of letters and interviews in Herndon's neglected archives, one runs across clues of various kinds. F- following the clues provided by the testimony of two of Herndon's informants, both of whom were trying to recall something that had happened 30 years earlier and neither of whose account proved to be strictly accurate, I was led By a kind of triangulation to a previously unknown letter to the editor of an obscure village newspaper in 1834, a letter that was written by Abraham Lincoln. This added an entirely new item, and a very interesting and colorful one, to the canon of Lincoln's works. Another result of combing through Herndon's neglected archive of letters and interviews was the discovery of a girlfriend of Lincoln's whose name does not appear in the standard biographies but a welter of other evidence eventually makes it clear that not only was Lincoln deeply attracted to this young woman, whose name was Matilda Edwards, but that he was in competition for her affections with his roommate at the time and best friend, Joshua Speed. Neither, it turned out, would be successful with Matilda, but Lincoln's lack of success and the resentment and recriminations of his former girlfriend, Mary Todd, contributed to his well-documented emotional collapse in January of 1841. These developments, once pieced together, constitute an important but unacknowledged chapter in the story of Lincoln's formative years. Now, I offer these unexpected discoveries as examples, but I do not claim to have exhausted the possibilities. Far from it. There are many clues to pursue, and I've not been able to follow up on all the promising ones by any means. Let me just share a few with you that uh, I find particularly intriguing. In the midst of his researches into the early life of his famous law partner, William H. Herndon received a letter from Abraham Lincoln's old friend, George Spears. Spears had tried to accommodate Herndon by trying to determine the dates at which certain things in Lincoln's early life took place. He wrote back to Herndon, I took my horse this morning and went over to the neighborhood of New Salem, among the potters and Armstrongs, and made all the inquiries I could, but could learn nothing. The old ladies would begin to count up what happened in Salem when such a one of their children was born, and such a one had a bastard, but it all amounted to nothing. I could arrive at no dates, only when those children were born. This is what is known in research (coughs) as a dry hole. (laughs) The same letter, however, describes for Herndon a much more promising source of information, a former resident of the New Salem area named Z.C. Ingram. Sears wrote, this man, Ingram, kept a store in New Salem at the time that Lincoln and Barry, Duncan and Kelso all lived there and can give you all the dates. There's no end to his recollections. He never forgets anything that he sees or hears. Ingram, it turned out, was living in St. Louis and Herndon had heard of him before. Only a week earlier another correspondent from the Petersburg area had written, and Z.C. Ingram Esquire was here, who was intimately acquainted with Lincoln for nearly three years, ending in October 1834. Mr. Ingram is a man on whose statement you may rely. He has a very retentive memory has a fund of amusing Lincolnia anecdotes, Ingram is the very man you want. Herndon never caught up with Ingram. But what I want to call your attention to is that someone said to have known Lincoln well for three years in New Salem, someone who was considered reliable, with a retentive memory, and a fund of amusing Lincolnia anecdotes, was walking the streets of St. Louis in 1866. My question is this, is it likely that such a person would go unnoticed by the press at a time when St. Louis had 13 active and competitive newspapers and when virtually anything about Lincoln's life was thought to be news? If Ingram's recollections of Lincoln were not recorded by the press, then what about some form of personal reminiscence as recorded in letters or family history? What this means, in short, is that Ingram's recollections of Lincoln are a source well worth looking for and all it takes is the time and determination to look maybe someone here tonight will be inspired to go in search of it what should give us encouragement is that herndon did succeed in finding one of the other people mentioned above joseph duncan a physician who had come to new salem about the same time as abraham lincoln duncan's testimony which exists in a single letter to herndon is richly detailed and constitutes invaluable testimony of its kind. But one of the other people he was looking for, Jack Kelso, Herndon does not seem to have located. Like Ingram, Kelso could undoubtedly have told Herndon a great deal about Lincoln and New Salem. But more important, Kelso is a prime subject of interest in his own right. For Kelso has long been a source of fascination for students of Lincoln's early life. From information Herndon collected, he believed, quote, Kelso was an educated as well as a well-read man, deeply and thoroughly read in Burns and Shakespeare. According to Hardin Bale, who lived in New Salem, Kelso and Lincoln were great friends, always together, always talking and arguing. Another New Salem resident, Caleb Carman's testimony perhaps is the most revealing. Kelso loved Shakespeare and fishing above all other things. Abe loved Shakespeare, but not fishing. Still, Kelso would draw Abe. They used to sit on the bank of the river and quote Shakespeare, criticize one another. Kelso, Kelso, if at himself, is a good Shakespearean scholar for a Western man. Now Herndon never caught up with Jack Kelso, though the general information that he was given, that he lived in Missouri, turns out to have been correct. Kelso, we now know, settled in Knox County in northeast Missouri, dying there in 1870 at the age of 61. And as with Ingram, even if he deliberately avoided the press, we may ask, is it likely that his family and friends were told nothing about Kelso's friendship with Lincoln? And if they had been, would they have left no history or recollection, no written or oral history of his celebrated friendship? I submit that it's worth doubting and, therefore, worth pursuing. The person who finds Kelso's recollections of Lincoln will not only experience the exhilaration of discovery, a legal high, which is unsurpassed by any other that I'm familiar with, but also the gratitude of posterity. And I sincerely hope it may be one of you. Of course, the digging that's required to find new sources of historical information is often beset with dry holes. But that's what research is all about. Let me talk now about some new sources that we don't have to wait for. I begin with one of the many discoveries of Professor Michael Burlingame, who is, in my opinion, the most prodigious researcher ever to investigate the life of Abraham Lincoln. He's published seven books in as many years, and most of these are new editions or new compilations of lost or neglected sources, including five volumes containing the letters, essays, diaries, and memoranda of Lincoln's White House secretaries and biographers, John G. Nicolay and John Hay. In the interest of time, I will cite only one of Professor Burlingame's discoveries. Nicolay and Hay wrote a huge ten volume biography of their former chief, in which are found a scattered handful of quotations from certain of Lincoln's close friends on intriguing topics in Lincoln's early life. Where these quotations came from has never been evident until Presser Burlingame discovered their source, a series of personal interviews conducted by Nicolay with some of Lincoln's very oldest and closest friends, Orville H. Browning, William Butler, Milton Hay, John Todd Stewart, Jesse K. Du Bois, Stephen T. Logan, Leonard Sweat, Ward Hill Lehman, to name only a few of the better known figures. These were people who were very close to Lincoln and who knew him well, but their testimony, except for the few stray remarks mentioned earlier, had been entirely unknown until just a few years ago. What these close associates of Lincoln told Nicolay had been largely suppressed by the biographers because it dealt mainly with Lincoln's personal life, a subject that Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, did not want Nicolay and Hay to treat in detail. Since they were dependent on the goodwill of the president's son for the use of his father's papers, they decided to confine themselves as much as possible to Lincoln's public life. But these interviews published by Professor Burlingame as an oral history of Abraham Lincoln in 1996 are nonetheless enormously significant and are already having a decided impact on Lincoln biography. A truly dramatic example of what's still to be learned about Lincoln and one that may be of particular interest to some of you is the work just completed after many years of effort by the Lincoln Legal Papers Project. Though we've always known that Lincoln made his living as a lawyer, and though many books have been written about Lincoln the lawyer, it is now made clear that we have known about his practice of law only partially and anecdotally. That is, what we think we know about this subject is based on accounts of a relatively small number of individual cases and trials and the random recollections of certain attorneys, judges, clients, and other participants. But if you asked, how many law cases did Lincoln have? Or how many jury trials did he participate in? Or how many times did he win? Or how many times did he represent the defendant? Or how much of his practice was in criminal cases, or murder cases, or appellate cases, or in defending railroads or corporations? Heretofore there was no way to answer these very basic questions. Now, thanks to the exhaustive research and resulting database put together by the Lincoln Legal Papers Project, those questions can all be answered in short order and definitively. Moreover, this magnificent new tool, which was published in electronic format in the year 2000, and um, which the librarians tell me is now uh, at the Special Collections Room in uh, Grand Valley State, throw in these things, and then I lose, lose my place. Uh, this, we, we now are able to, to understand, because this project has searched every file in every courthouse that Lincoln ever practiced in, it can display an image of every piece of paper that still survives pertaining to those cases, some 96,000 items. The editors have usefully provided tables, charts, maps, legal definitions information about lawyers and judges, as well as explanations of how the law courts operated in antebellum Illinois. Perhaps best of all, they've provided succinct descriptions in plain English of what was at issue in each of Lincoln's cases. In short, we now have for the first time, for the first time, a means of really getting at a very significant subject in a detailed and thorough way. Needless to say, this indispensably valuable new tool, which can be used by anybody, from school children to professional scholars, will totally revolutionize our understanding of a very important part of Lincoln's life. For anyone interested in this aspect of Lincoln's career, it is the dawn of a new era. Let me now turn this discussion of what is still to be learned about Abraham Lincoln to some examples that have come from our work with the Library of Congress in transcribing and annotating Lincoln's personal papers. A frequent question put to us as we began this project is how what we are doing differs from what was already done 50 years ago by Roy P. Basler and his associates in compiling the landmark edition of Lincoln's collected works. One of the major differences is that Basler's project did not include Lincoln's incoming mail, an extremely revealing source. Reading only one side of a correspondence is a serious liability, whoever you're trying to study. And Lincoln is no exception. Lincoln's personal papers contain other kinds of highly revealing documents that Lincoln acquired or created, some of of them quite surprising. For example, there's a photostatic copy of a letter. They did make photostats in Lincoln's day. Copy of a letter in the hand of Andrew Jackson, in which he explains to a correspondent at the time of the nullification crisis in 1833, that, quote, the tariff was only the pretext, and disunion or a southern confederacy was the real object. The next pretext will be the Negro or the slavery question. There's no place in the collected works for such a document, but its presence in Lincoln's personal papers is highly significant. And we're not only transcribing it, but explaining in our annotation how and in what context Lincoln acquired it. There are other kinds of items that don't fit into the format of an edition like the collected works, such as copies Lincoln wrote out in his own hand of letters written to others. When he took the trouble to copy and retain such a letter, our project will offer an image of the document as well as a uh, text and an explanation. Yes, you say, but you are dodging the question. Surely everything by Lincoln himself is included in the collected works. Not really. Remember that Basler and his associates were concerned to present a text of everything Lincoln wrote in its most authoritative form. Therefore, he does not print stricken material, that is, material that Lincoln first wrote and subsequently struck out. Sometimes Basler reports in a footnote that something was stricken, but not consistently. For example, he does not report the highly revealing fact that in writing out the conditions for his duel with James Shields, Lincoln first included, but later struck out, a time limit for the duel. Students of Lincoln have long wondered about his choice of weapons for the duel, large and heavy broadswords. In these circumstances, it seems significant that a condition for this comic mismatch that was first included, but later stricken, specified, quote, the fight in no case to last more than 15 minutes. Mortal combat, but only 15 minutes worth (laughs) it. One of the most significant things that users of the Library of Congress website will have access to that do not appear in the collected works uh, is Lincoln's preliminary drafts. Lincoln was one of our greatest American writers, and he took great care in preparing what he believed would be an important text. For example, Lincoln wrote many drafts of his first inaugural address, five of which survive in the Lincoln Papers. Our project is duly transcribing them all, showing all the insertions and the deletions in each. By reading these drafts in succession, one can see with dramatic clarity, and I believe see in no other way just how the different parts of the address evolved and the struggle that Lincoln had, draft after draft, to arrive at, just the right tone of voice, just the right presentation of how things stood between the government and the disaffected states, just the right balance of firmness and flexibility. We all remember the famous ending uh, in which Lincoln concluded on a note of conciliation. He pleaded with what he called my dissatisfied fellow countrymen not to break the union, appealing to, quote, the mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land. And he expressed the hope that these chords will yet swell the chorus of union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. What comes home to the reader of all the successive drafts of the first inaugural is that this memorable, very conciliatory language which owed much to the suggestions of his Secretary of State, William H. Seward, appeared only as a handwritten addition to the final draft. Its being added there just before the inauguration ceremony represented, in fact, a dramatic shift from the ending of all the earlier drafts, all of which had concluded with a bluntly defiant question for the South, shall it be peace or a sword? This is an important story that cannot be glimpsed in gre- reading only the final text, nor can the evolution of the address be followed intelligently, in, intelligibly in footnotes, as in the collected works. It's necessary to read each draft in succession and observe the changes as they evolve. And this Lincoln's students with access to the Library of Congress website will soon be able to do. Incidentally, for all the attention paid to Lincoln's closing paragraph and his brilliant adaptation of Steward's suggested text, we can find no study in all of Lincoln scholarship that focuses on the drafting of the first inaugural and that takes advantage of the five surviving texts and the immensely revealing story they tell. If there's someone here tonight who would like to study a significant Lincoln topic but thought there was nothing left to study, I hope they will take note. I want to conclude by calling your attention to one more example of a famous Lincoln text that exists in the Lincoln papers in multiple drafts, his message to Congress of July 4, 1861. The mere mention of a president's message to Congress is enough to glaze over the eyes and freeze the interest of all but the most devoted and specialized students. But Lincoln, as we know, was a masterful writer with an extraordinary gift that rarely failed him, even in the most mundane and unpromising venues. The fact is that his messages to Congress contain some of his most famous and inspiring language, such as the conclusion of the annual annual message of 1862. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. It would appear that on no speech or writing did Abraham Lincoln work longer and more diligently than he did on the message to Congress that he proposed to send to that body when it convened in emergency session on the 4th of July, 1861. In it, he would describe the harrowing events of the secession crisis and explain and justify his actions in responding to it. But difficult as that task was, he aspired from the first to do more, to analyze and set forth the deepest causes of the national difficulty, and to clarify what was at stake. The great Lincoln scholar James G. Randall aptly called attention to the multiple purposes of Lincoln's message. He said it comprised a history of events, a report of stewardship, a constitutional argument, and an exalted commentary on fundamentals. You may recall that the firing on Fort Sumter occurred on April 12, plunging Lincoln and the federal government into a turbulent whirlwind of activity. But characteristically, in the midst of all these trying events, A part of Lincoln's mind was working on what it was about and what it all meant. Both of his secretaries were sufficiently struck by something he said on May 7th, just three weeks after the fateful Sumter incident, that they both made notes on it. John G. Nicolay's memorandum reads, Going into the president's room this morning found hay with him. The conversation turning on the subject of the existing contest, he remarked that the real question involved in it parenthesis, as he had about made up his mind, though he would think further about it while writing his message, was whether a free and representative government had the right and power to protect itself and maintain itself. What this shows is that Lincoln was already thinking about what would go into his message to Congress two months before it was to be delivered, and he was well along in the process of deciding what the bedrock issue was to be. Nicolay is also our source for gauging how long and how intensively Lincoln worked on his message. Nicolay wrote his fiancé on July 3rd, the day before the message was to be delivered, since my return from Illinois on June 18th the president has been engaged almost constantly in writing his message and he's refused to receive any calls, whatever, either of friendship or business except from members of the cabinet or high officials. Nicolay is describing a period of more than two weeks during which the President worked incess- incessantly on his message, which Nicolay says in another memorandum of the same date, the day before it was printed to Congress, presented to Congress, was still unfinished. Although they have scarcely been noticed and never, to my, my knowledge, studied by Lincoln scholars, Lincoln's preliminary drafts of his message are immensely revealing. They help us understand how and in what order Lincoln crafted the arguments set out in this crucial document. What he put in, what he took out, what he changed, and what he let stand. Though there are a great many things in the drafting process that might be pointed out, I have only time for two examples. In the earliest surviving draft, which Lincoln wrote out in large characters on well-spaced lines, its authors thought to preserve a becoming formality, um, which included referring to himself as the present incumbent, or the executive. But as he began to relate the most trying circumstances, he perhaps began to relive them, for he switched dramatically to the first person. This is all the more significant because Lincoln was instinctively reticent about personal matters and was notorious among his friends and acquaintances for keeping his feelings to himself. His own two attempts at autobiography were dragged out of him under the pressure of political necessity and were noteworthy for stopping in 1854, thereby omitting everything he been become famous for. As he said at the conclusion of one of them, what I have done since is pretty well known. In his message to Congress, July 4, 1861, Lincoln felt called upon to describe and explain his actions leading up to the firing on Fort Sumter. In his first handwritten draft, he maintained his third-person mode of self-reference until he came to relating his first decisive action, his decision not to follow the advice of his military and other advisors and abandon the fort. Here's a portion of Lincoln's earliest handwritten version. No sign of this in battle. In a purely military point of view, this reduced the duty of the administration in the case to the mere matter of getting the garrison safely out of the fort. In fact, General Scott advised that this be done at once. I believed, however, that to do so would be utterly ruinous, that the necessity under which it was to be done would not be fully understood, that by many it would be construed as a part of a voluntary policy, that at home it would discourage the friends of the Union, embolden its foes, and go far to ensure to the latter a recognition of independence abroad, that, in fact, it would be our national destruction consummated. I hesitated." This is autobiography. It would be hard to imagine a more succinct description of this existential moment than the dramatic two-word sentence, I hesitate. For here, Lincoln has acknowledged a sharp difference between his advisors whose view was solely focused on military considerations, and his own, which was political and strategic. Caught in this inenviable position, almost his first decision as president, Lincoln admits that rather than yield to his advisors or peremptorily insist upon his own view, he had paused to think it through. He hesitated. But this will not do for a report to Congress, which will be published and read by friend and foe alike, So Lincoln revised the passage. First, he eliminated the reference to General Scott's advice about abandoning the fort so as to avoid the impression of a clash of opinions. Then he changed his first-person references to himself to the third person, the administration believed, and later submerged his own persona even further by retreating to the passive voice, it was believed. Finally, he decided that even saying the administration hesitated, conveyed the wrong message. So he eliminated that and substituted instead, this could not be allowed. Not hesitation, but decision. One final example, far and away the most quoted passage from the message of July 4, 1861, is a stirring passage near the conclusion which was intended to show people that saving their government was not just a necessary but a noble undertaking. Having to concern himself with the most basic issues, particularly the right of the majority government to preserve itself, Lincoln had deliberately omitted any reference to slavery. Finding himself in substantial agreement with Andrew Jackson's insight that the Southern leaders were mainly looking for a pretext to form the Southern Confederacy, Lincoln had told his secretaries in one of their sessions, admit the right of a minority to secede at will and the occasion for such secession would almost as likely be any other as the slavery question. Therefore, Lincoln decided to ignore the issue of slavery in his message and to concentrate on what he considered the prior and more fundamental issue, the survival of majority rule. But in his conclusion, he attempted to depict the benevolent aims of government, of a democratic government, in such a way as to draw a circle that would implicitly include the problem of slavery. The existence of his preliminary drafts enable us to observe Lincoln in a telling gesture, which I believed was aimed at signaling this intent. He did it all by revising what he'd first written with the simple substitution of one word, unfettered. And in reading this in the, in the present context, it seems to me to resonate with the kind of meaning that we that we come to for Lincoln and that we get. This is what he wrote. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Tell that to the Taliban. Thank you very much.